0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel, fueled by innovation,
1: powered to perform. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson.
0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. We always appreciate you being a part of our program today and what a series of discussions we are going to be having. We're going to be talking with Pedro Veneca, founder and partner of MD Commodities here in just a moment about the moves we're seeing develop in the commodity market as well as what he's watching happen down there in Brazil. And then in segment two, we're going to turn the focus to soybeans. Christy Seifert, executive director of the American Soybean Association, will be joining us. That farm bill discussion is heating up, and the oil seeds want to be sure they are taken care of as well. And then in segment three, Dr. Paul Sundberg, the executive director of the Swine Health Information Center, will be joining us. We're going to talk about just what's going on with that global sweat spread of swine diseases internationally. But first and foremost, let's take a look at the commodity markets today. We've got a little bit of green on the screen. Pedro had some positive broad economic news earlier this morning. What's your sense of where commodities go from here?
2: Mike, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here on the show again. Thanks for having me and hello to everyone. Um, listen, Mike, I think we were oversold here in the short term uh, you know, I was having conversation with clients uh, worldwide, br- Brazil, US, and it kind of explaining to them that in my view, in our view, the, the, potentially, the, the fundamentals for the second half of 2023 are potentially extremely bearish, but that also depends on Perf- the performance of u.s weather of the u.s crops and because we are in may in the calendar and not in late june it's a little bit too soon to count the crop in the bins you know already i think the market has to be careful here despite the potentially extremely bearish scenario for two th- for the second half of 2023 um this is not the time to in my opinion to push market to, or to put the prices much lower at this point so i think we we should see a little bit of a bounce, maybe pre-report, you know, before the uh, report next Friday.
0: All right, but you mentioned that extremely bearish potential outlook for the tail end of 2023. Pedro, is the downside bigger in your mind on corn or soybeans? Great question.
2: That's a great, great, great question. Um, I I would have said corn uh, until about uh, the last 30 days. I mean, corn has given up a lot of uh, premium here. I do think corn could easily go back to trade. Sub 450, DSCORN, uh, sub 450, even approach 420. If, if, big if, uh, the U.S. crop has a good performance. I think the U.S. this year could have uh, the potential to put, on, put in a record uh, uh, corn crop, not just in quantity, but also in yields. But again, guys, I know there's, you know, Nebraska is dry, Kansas is dry, parts of Iowa is dry. I mean, we have to really pay attention to that. Now, the forecasts are very favorable. When we look at the weekly forecast going forward, it looks like there's rains arriving. But you know what? Until those rains do arrive, we can't count them. You know, we cannot uh, guarantee. Now, soybeans. um, If you take into consideration the uh, continuous contract, right? The uh, continuation contract nearby, we're trading around 14.40 right now in the July. Uh, By time the November becomes the spot contract, we could absolutely see that trading down to. $11.50, $11, $11.50, 11 dollars 11 dollars maybe even sub-11, again, if we have a good performance of U.S. crops this summer.
0: Indeed, that is the concern as we get ready for planting up here. But uh, Pedro, we've also got harvest not too terribly far away down there in South America. I know you maintain close ties to growers across Brazil. How does that Safrina crop looking as we prepare for that dry season in South America?
2: Big, very, okay. very you know, we uh, Um, We we always try to bring uh, the most objective information we can. Uh, I'm saying this to all the folks that are out there watching and listening. The crop is gigantic. It's going to be not only a new record crop, uh, it's very likely likely going to be above 130 millimetric tons. That is up from last year's record of around 117 millimetric tons, uh, which is up from 87 the year prior so you're thinking you're you're looking at incredible gains and by the way that explains why brazil this year uh is getting is going to be crowned the number one corn exporter in the world surpassing the united states you and i have talked about this multiple times here in the show i've been warning about this for months on end that u.s exports corn exports uh we're not going to perform there's just too much cheaper corn out there in the world right now and uh, u.s can't compete with it
0: pedro timing that massive safrina crop when do brazilian farmers really get that
2: moving into the global system june uh, and june july you should really think july so the us 104 exports for corn exports is still here uh the us right now argentina had some issues you know they do have some corn to export a lot less than they would have had uh you know because of the drought that they had down there but uh they still have corn to sell put in the market brazil does too but brazil right now is focused on soybeans so The U.S. window for corn exports is still open, although the performance is not very optimistic at this point. Uh, I think world buyers understand how much corn is coming in from Brazil at much, much cheaper levels than current uh, U.S. levels. So uh, they're sort of hand to mouth right now waiting for that July timeframe to really start buying up cheap Brazilian corn.
0: Pedro, you've mentioned this. We've seen Brazil now overtake U.S. potentially as the world's largest corn exporter. We've seen the U.S. and Brazil go back and forth with that title when it comes to soybeans. Yeah. Howard's the Brazilian farmer feeling? A recent report out from the University of Illinois shows the Brazil farm ground values have doubled in three years, 2019 through 2022. I've got to imagine there's enthusiasm to keep the ag industry growing in Brazil. You know, you and I also have talked a lot
2: about this. As long as the economic incentive is there, there is literally no barrier for continuous growth of, of Brazilian production and exports. Um, and the industry there is thriving. Uh, but also, it's time for a little bit of caution. You know, uh, land values increase increasing the way they have in the last three to five years. Um, anytime a market it goes up like that, we have to be cautious. I do think we could be entering... Um, a little bit of a cautious scenario here in the next few years especially starting with uh the u.s crop this summer if if there's good performance here we could see much lower prices which in turn is going to make uh things a lot more cautious down there not only uh land values but also you know with the producers going to have to manage their risk a little bit better than they have been managing in the last uh few years the last few years the market has just been giving gifts to the world producer and I think risk management is going to come back in the fray here uh, in the next few months.
0: Risk management coming back into the fray. Pedro, you mentioned the potential downsides in corn and soybeans. The wheat
2: market popping a little bit this morning. Does it have room to run? That, you know, I, I posted on Twitter not too long ago. Uh, I said um, one of the, if not the only bullish uh, aspect of the corn market for me is the wheat short position. Uh, That position right now with everything that's happening in the Black Sea, with the tensions that are still there, you know, we're one headline away. As we saw a couple days ago, we're one headline away from a major short covering rally. And that's not even to mention what's happening with HRW. Uh, that, That winter wheat crop is unfortunately absolutely awful. And I think the market is starting to realize that. So despite the fact that we don't have a shortage of wheat anywhere in the world right now, uh we must pay attention to that fun short given the circumstances which with uh hrw right now and also with the situation in the black sea so we must be careful here
0: absolutely folks next week we'll be talking to mike schultz of the oklahoma wheat commission about just how dismal that crop does look across that state our thanks to pedro danica founder partner md commodities find him on twitter at phd pedro pedro thanks for joining us today thanks mike appreciate you guys Join us again here in just a second. We'll be talking soybeans with Christy Seifert at the American Soybean Association. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS
3: Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed.
4: What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice us.org.
0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine
1: Oil, oil that runs smart. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson.
0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for making AOA a part of your day today. And now we're going to turn our focus from the markets to Washington, D.C. Policy issues are taking center stage as these farm bill negotiations and hearings heat up on Capitol Hill. And joining us today for an update on what the soybean industry is fighting for in this next round of farm battles is Christy Seifert. She serves as the executive director for government affairs at the American Soybean Association. And Christy, thanks for joining us here today.
5: Mike, thanks
0: so much for having me. Let's talk about some of the action that's been happening up in Washington, D.C. earlier this week. Of course, the uh, American Soybean Association Secretary, Caleb, testified in front of the House Ag Committee. And Christy, what was he talking about?
5: It has been a very busy couple of weeks in Washington. We were very fortunate to have Kayla Bragland, one of our officers, testify in D.C. before a subcommittee of the Senate Agriculture Committee. Um, Last week, we had Daryl Cates, our president of ASA, testify in front of a subcommittee of the House Agriculture Committee. And both of these uh, farmers took a break from their day jobs to, to make the trip and advocate for our farm bill needs, advocate on behalf of all soybean farmers. And this these two hearings were focused on the farm safety net that farmers so desperately need. And uh, they were talking about um, the need to protect crop insurance. Crop insurance is such a valuable risk management tool that we want to see protected Uh, In the next farm bill, we want to make sure that harmful amendments are not adopted that would make crop insurance less affordable or less effective uh, moving forward. So, number one, a message of protecting crop insurance, very important that they shared. Another very important message is the need for Congress to improve the Title I farm safety net for soybeans especially. Uh, We lived through the China trade war a few years ago and unfortunately found an unresponsive Title I farm safety net, um, ARC and PLC specifically. And just knowing that there's a lot happening in the world, there's tremendous volatility um, on the global stage, we want to make sure that we are improving and and providing for a stronger safety net for farmers in the next farm bill. Um, You know, when you look at that, uh, the options for improving ARC and PLC, that includes increasing the living reference price. Um, That includes adjusting the ARC calculations for farmers. It also includes providing an option for farmers to update base acres to a recent more um, recent defined period of time while allowing new acres to enter into the program we have a 30 plus million acre gap in soybeans when you consider more recent plantings with soybean base on which arc and plc are based and so um, we we want to make sure that we are providing a stronger safety net um, in the next farm bill
0: Christy, that base acre distinction is a really important one, and it's something that I think kind of flies under the radar for a lot of folks who maybe aren't plugged into the nuts and bolts of ag policy. Could you talk a little bit about the base acre situation and how it is that we're in a place where soybeans have 30 million more acres planted than they have represented in those base acres that USDA uses?
5: Sure, so um, just by the numbers, uh, in, in 2022, soybeans were planted nationally on 87.5 million acres. Our, uh, by comparison, our soybean based totals 53.2 million acres, um, that that 30 million gap is very real. Now, some of the the soybean acres may have been corn or wheat-based, for example, but, um, you know, over time, I think very importantly, a a key pillar of farm policy has been planting flexibility. Uh, Farmers have elected to uh, respond to market, Uh, market decisions, market reflections. They have um, decided to, you know, choose what crops are best for their operation in any given year, and so planting flexibility is something that has benefited the soybean uh, industry tremendously, and certainly we'll want to see that Continue rather than having uh, government programs dictate um, plantings as perhaps they might have you know decades ago. Um, so I think planting flexibility is one reason we've seen um, a change. But you know I think also we've we've seen changes in in crop mix over over the years. So for example, Caleb um, Braglin, who testified um, this week, uh, he's a farmer from Kentucky. He has purchased land that was prior, you know, previously planted to tobacco. Um, tobacco is not the crop it was um, some years back. And, of course, there are you know, similar situations with other crops. Um, no-till, other conservation practices have allowed for planting of, of land that perhaps wasn't covered by Base acres in the past, there are these situations that have enabled farmers to cultivate row crops in new areas that have no base. Uh, and so I think there are several factors in all of this, and we just want to make sure that our farmers have uh, have the ability to tap into an effective uh, farm safety net. they They need to have greater accessibility, they need greater reliability of the Title I farm safety net.
0: And so much of that, Christy, comes back to those price levels that are set. You mentioned the reference prices, and of course, American soybean farmers aren't the only ones looking to see those reference prices modernized. How's that conversation going in DC? Do legislators understand the difference in price levels from 2018
5: to 2023? I think they do. I think they recognize just by the numbers. I know. Several farmers provided perspective on, you know, what the what the reference price is right now in soy, you know, eight dollars forty cents. Uh, compared to a break-even uh, price for growing the crop, which is soy, University of El- Illinois, has estimated to be in that $12, $12.50 range. And then, you know, you look at also where market prices are right now, $12.75 a couple of days ago for November beans. Um, you know, we're, we're in a situation with higher input costs. We're in a situation where, you um, you know, certainly the, the reference prices haven't caught up with, with where the market prices are. And so, um, in improving, increasing the soybean reference price, either the statutory reference price change, that number in law, or adjustment to the effective reference price calculation, um, or, you know, a combination of those would certainly be helpful.
0: Anything to make it more reflective of the economic situation farmers are facing today certainly makes sense. Christy, another major topic we continue to hear about coming from Washington, D.C. is the focus on conservation, climate smart agriculture. Where's ASA fall on putting these pieces together for that 23 farm bill?
5: Sure. Well, you know, I'll tell you, um, I was kind of surprised that that did not get a lot of attention in the hearings these uh, past couple of weeks. But, you know, soybean farmers have always been great conservationists. Farmers are the greatest conservationists. I I firmly believe that. Um, For years, farm bill conservation programs have been in place to help um, encourage uh, farmers to adopt Uh, conservation practices some have done this on their own independently without conservation practice uh, or program support and you know I think that ASA as a whole certainly we want to see voluntary incentive-based conservation programs continue we have programs like EQIP and CSP that our farmers have shared um, their interest in tapping into and um, utilizing to, uh, to make, you know, their farming operations better. Um, and there's just simply, there hasn't been the resources or there haven't been the staffing resources at USDA, whether that's, you know, NRCS or, you know, a concern uh, too with FSA as we think about just, just farm bill delivery. Um, but we want to make sure that the resources are sufficient for conservation programs. The staffing situation is such that it helps farmers in the short term, but as well as the long term. Because, boy, if Congress puts all of this time and effort and resources into getting a good farm bill across the finish line, we want it to be, uh, we don't want it to languish in the implementation phase because of staffing challenges.
0: Absolutely. Whatever gets done this year legislatively, hopefully the administration can make it happen executive wise to make the pieces all come together. Christy, American Soybean Association going to be active on Capitol Hill for the remainder of this year. What are some of the other big hearings you're excited to to present about for the American soybean grower?
5: You know, I think um, at some point soon, Congress will, will probably put a pause on the input gathering, the hearings, because the staffing required to pull those together will need to shift to um, all of the other activity necessary for writing a farm bill. So I hope that everyone knows we're going to keep fighting for the, uh, for the soybean farmer in D.C.
0: Folks, you can keep up to speed at soygrowers.com. We've been talking to Christy Seifert, Executive Director of Government Affairs at the American Soybean Association. Christy, thanks for joining us. And folks, stay with us. Paul Sundberg will join us about swine health when we return. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. I think Farman picked me. I didn't pick farming.
7: Friendship and fun a world of adventure beneath a golden sun running laughing full of wonder being themselves is second nature summer camp is where they begin to unlock the confidence that lies within when kids find new passions they find their why summer camp season starts soon learn more at YMCA.org for a better us
8: You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Also well, take a look at the market trade here on this Friday. We see that grains and oil seeds along with the energy complex are trading their way a bit higher here in early action, led by Kansas City wheat and by soybeans. We did see palm oil reverse its way higher finally, up 5% due to an expected drop in palm oil stocks and increased demand And this soy complex, beans, bean oil specifically, have been looking to the world veg oil prices for a bit of direction. Now overarching and overcompassing. All of this is, of course, what's happening on Wall Street. A bit of a bounce there on Friday, although traders are still worried about the ongoing Federal Reserve interest rate hikes and also the continued saga of worrisome news from the regional banking sector. We're really keeping our eyes on that closely. A 50% drop in the stock of PacWest Bancorp Thursday. Unnerved traders one day after the Fed raised the interest rates and Fed Chair Jerome Powell said the U.S. banking system was sound and resilient. Now, also, we're watching here throughout this trade, uh, the economy created 253,000 non-farm payroll jobs in April, up from 165,000 last month. The unemployment rate fell to 3.4%, down from 3.5%. Both of those numbers were below analyst expectations. So really continuing to watch what is happening here in this outside market trade. Crude oil bouncing up 2% here this morning as we work through and try to bounce off the recent sharp lows. In the livestock trade, looks like cash cattle trade is wrapped up here for the week, although the futures in live and feeder cattle are trading moderately higher. Hogs, a little bit of profit taking ongoing there, it looks like, with moderate pressure. We see corn 3 to 6 higher, beans 9 to 18 higher, wheat futures anywhere from 5 to 18 higher, led by KC Weed here on this Friday. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen.
0: agriculture of america is brought to you by Senex maxtron synthetic diesel engine oil oil that runs smart
1: information farmers and ranchers need to know aoa now back to mike pearson
0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and now we're going to turn our focus back to the livestock sector, but for the first time in a while, we're not going to be talking cattle. We're going to turn our focus to the hog industry. Joining us now is Dr. Paul Sundberg. He serves as the executive director for the Swine Health Information Center, keeps up to speed on issues, diseases impacting the swine industry, both domestically and globally. Dr. Sunberg, thanks so much for joining us on AOA today.
6: Good morning, Mike. It's good to be with you.
0: Well, Dr. Sundberg, believe it or not, spring is coming after a long winter for a lot of folks in pork-producing regions here of the U.S. As spring gets close, as these temperatures warm up, what are some of the domestic diseases you're tracking that the industry needs to be alert to right now?
6: Yeah, we're looking across the country through our veterinary diagnostic lab reports at movement of PERS, for example. Everybody is interested in PERS, for sure. Um, there have been a- significant increases in PERS Positive cases in Kansas and Ohio. Um, the the line 1C variant of Pers is still primarily in the Midwest, from Nebraska all the way across to Oklahoma or to Ohio and Oklahoma up to Ohio. It's not yet in the Southeast, which is good news. So, um, uh, one thing about Pers that I want to bring up, Mike, too, is we get conflicting reports out of the out of the country, out of the field. Um, Some variants and some strains seem to be worse in some areas and not as bad in some other infections. And I think it's important for producers to talk to their veterinarians about getting whole genome sequencing done on PERS isolates because the more information you have, if you just do a partial sequence, that's only partial information and the more information you have, um, it's better to be informed so you can make some animal health, swine health uh, decisions and, and plans.
0: That certainly makes sense, that whole whole genome sequencing to really get the full information. You mentioned, Dr. Sundberg, these are significant um, outbreaks of PERS. Did these put us above sort of the, the trend line we've seen for the past few years?
6: No, you know, it doesn't put us in the trend line. The, the trend line overall for the country is just as we would expect. Actually, it's probably a little bit lower than the average baseline that we would expect. So that's good news. The, the hot spots, though, with this L1C and, um, and the increase in infections, Kansas and Ohio, and then this L1C in the Midwest are still hot spots. But overall, uh, for this time of year, we're sitting pretty good going into warmer weather.
0: Well, that is good to hear. Dr. Sundberg, from a swine health perspective, do we have any issues that are preventing the industry from expanding right now? Or is the lack of expansion due to other factors, costs and, and supplies and that sort of thing?
6: Yeah, no, I think from an animal health perspective, our our data shows that we're in pretty good shape right now. Um, coming out of the winter and into the spring, we've got low uh, incidence of PERS overall, of course, with hot spots. Coronavirus and PED, um, South Dakota, Nebraska, Missouri, North Carolina have had some increases. But overall, we're as expected. And then mycoplasma is as expected. And so we're, we're in fairly decent shape right now domestically with animal health, with swine health.
0: Well, that is good news, particularly as spring gets here. But, Dr. Sundberg, let's take our focus and expand it. Looking around the world, of course, from the swine health perspective that I hear about, one of the major concerns continues to be African swine fever. I understand we at least had one new ASF outbreak in Europe uh, this past month. Was that right?
6: Yeah, that's right. Um, There was another outbreak in Greece. It's probably related to the proximity with feral pigs over there, those wild boar in Europe. Are continuing to be an issue, and um, that helps to maintain the virus in the population. So there was an outbreak in Greece, and we expect that there'll be more in Eastern Europe, um, especially in Southeast Asia as well. Um, it, one of the things with highlights with ASF is that I know USDA is talking to the folks to the to the countries in the Caribbean about upping their surveillance. The ASF still on the Dominican Republic and Haiti on the island of Hispaniola. That still puts Puerto Rico at risk and the rest of the Western Hemisphere at risk, actually. So trying to increase, enhance the surveillance in that area is really a focus for USDA right now and working with those countries to see what we can do to help them.
0: From a biosecurity standpoint, Dr. Sundberg, that ASF being on the island of Hispaniola is is a huge concern. Obviously, it's proximity to the United States. It's proximity to, as you mentioned, Puerto Rico, other, other Caribbean islands. But I'm curious, what does a win look like? When can the U.S. hog industry take a breather about ASF on Hispaniola? Does it have to be eliminated, and is that possible?
6: Yeah, yeah, Mike. You know, I don't know that there is a win in our future. Um, not elimination. If you define win as elimination of ASF from the island of Hispaniola, that is not in our future right now. Um, That virus is maintained on there. Haiti has bigger problems than ASF, so the virus is going to continue to be there. That's going to continue to spill over to the Dominican Republic. The Dominican Republic's got to figure out how they're going to handle those outbreaks and how they're going to manage those USDA is giving them assistance in epidemiology and assistance in um, diagnostics, but uh, uh, the win there would be to simply stabilize the virus there and, and keep it at a low level for right now. It's continuing to be a risk, but um, we don't have a lot of wins in the future for that island. It's going to maintain a risk for the U.S. and the rest of the Caribbean and Western Hemisphere.
0: All right, this is here to stay. Keep an eye on that Caribbean growth of African swine fever. Before we go to China, I'm curious about China and African swine fever with you, Dr. Sundberg, but I want to look at Europe one more time first because the African swine fever vaccine is being discussed, particularly over in France. What's the likelihood that there is a viable vaccine and can it be worked into a food supply situation?
6: Sure, France is one of the many that are working on vaccines right now. Um, France, the UK, uh, USDA of course, Vietnam is testing vaccines, is actively testing vaccines. So there's a lot of activity in Germany as well. There's a lot of activity in that. It's kind of a race to see who can get there first. And France is certainly in that race and they're showing some promising results with their ASF vaccine candidate. As far as using the vaccines, if they can be commercially available at quantities sufficient, to be able to use widespread. They probably will be used in outbreak situations right now. The vaccines are not in the spot that you can differentiate an infection from a vaccination in a pig. So using them proactively to try to prevent infection in a country that hasn't previously had ASF is probably not in the cards. They're going to be used, if they're going to be used, and, and that's when they're going to be used in the future, and because they've got to be available. It'll probably be to uh, respond to outbreaks with ring vaccinations, moving your way in to try to tamp down that virus and control it in that area.
0: All right. We'll continue to watch the science then develop around those vaccines. But Dr. Sondberg, I would like to switch our focus over to Asia on the African swine fever front. We've had several market analysts on over the past month who have made mention of rumors of African swine fever circulating in China. Again, uncertainty about the extent of it. What have you heard through the VetMed establishment? Does it seem like ASF is back in that country?
6: Well, I'm not so sure I'd say it's back, Mike. I'd say it's never left. Um, okay. ASF is still there. ASF, ASF is still there. What they're trying to do is they're trying to um, uh, repopulate their breeding herds. And as they repopulate their breeding herds, they're putting naive pigs into production. And that allows ASF to infect new pigs. So their real focus over there right now is biosecurity, is trying to keep the virus out of those naive populations of new breeding pigs that they brought into their herds. Um, There's been some successes and there are a lot of failures so it's a continuing thing. We don't get a lot of good information out of China but um, what I get and what I'm hearing from the country is that they're still having significant problems with that as they try to repopulate their breeding herd
0: dr sunberg last year when we were talking there was a risk of japanese encephalopathy virus down across australia of course that's in conjunction with some foot in fmd risks that have been circulating around that country down in in that oceana area australia new zealand what other risks do you have around that swine industry right now
6: yeah down down in the southeast asia and, and oceana as you say um japanese encephalitis virus certainly is a risk for australia to continue Um, It spilled over from Indonesia, they have FMD in Indonesia, Australia is really concerned about the FMD that's in Indonesia also having the opportunity to spill over, and they're helping the Indonesian government try to vaccinate and control that. Japanese encephalitis virus down in that region so far this year has been very quiet, completely different than what we saw last year in 2022 at this time of year. There was a significant outbreak of a new genotype down there, and and this year so far, it's been very quiet. They think that that's probably attributed to um, the immunity in the reservoir species, the, the water egrets and waterfowl, or it might be also related to the industry's efforts to do mosquito control because that virus is is transmitted by mosquitoes, and certainly their lessons learned from last year is that they have to up their mosquito control, and our information is that they've significantly done that, and that might have contributed to the lessening of that virus in Australia for this year.
0: Well, hopefully that is paying dividends. They're that mosquito control, probably making backyard barbecues a little more enjoyable in rural Australia <laughs> as well. Dr. Sundberg, of course, keeps up to date on all of these issues. For folks who want to read more and keep up to speed with your work, where should they go for that information?
6: Sure. The primary place to go, Mike, thanks for asking that, is the swinehealth.org website. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter or all the information that we're talking about is on the, on the website waiting for people to access it.
0: It is a font of information on the global hog industry. Dr. Paul Sundberg of Schick, thanks for joining us here today.
6: My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mike.
0: And folks, stick around. We'll have more AOA coming up right after this. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil, oil that runs smart.
1: This is Around the Table,
0: where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Dan Maurer with the CHS Government Affairs Team in Washington about the future of E15 and legislative efforts to permit year-round nationwide sales. Dan, thanks for joining us today, and tell us, what are the benefits of year-round E15 availability?
9: First and foremost, the benefit of E15 is going to be a lower price for consumers. It's been shown many, many times around the country within uh, the E15 footprint that it routinely sells for about a dime less per gallon than your traditional gasolines. And in these days, when gas prices are still pretty elevated, that extra dime per gallon can make a real difference to people's lives, especially if you extrapolate that throughout a full year.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about CHS efforts to support renewable fuels broadly and E15 specifically?
9: CHS is really engaged in this conversation. I would say, first of all, we are board members of the Renewable Fuels Association. We do sit on their board, so we use that opportunity to talk with other ethanol producers and other uh, like-minded individuals uh, through RFA. We are members of Growth Energy, another large ethanol trade association. But also, CHS is very much involved in the conversations around a legislative solution to year-round E15.
0: How can expanded E15 use support the government government's carbon reduction initiatives and help the rural economy.
9: Expanded ethanol use biofuels in our fuels are going to decrease carbon emissions from our transportation sector. That's why CHS is really pushing the Biden administration to increase the use of ethanol within RVOs to pass year-round E15, because the green goals of this administration really align quite well with increased ethanol use in our transportation system.
0: Folks, that's Dan Maurer, member of the CHS Government Affairs team in Washington. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Mike. And thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com.
1: In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800 209 six four one six eight hundred two zero nine six four one six that's eight hundred two zero nine six four one six
0: agriculture of america is brought to you by cenex premium diesel fueled by innovation powered to perform Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You know, we spoke earlier in the show with Christy Seifert, the Executive Director of Government Affairs for the American Soybean Association, about what's happening in Washington, D.C. this time of year. And it it is a busy season over there in the nation's capital, but it's also a busy season at state capitals around the country. And increasingly, agricultural issues are burbling to the top of these legislative discussions. The most recent one about agriculture happened in Texas. Earlier this week, the Texas State Legislature passed a requiring alternative meat products to carry specific labels now this is one of the first in the country uh, that has been passed by a state legislature It was introduced by two different state representatives excuse me state representative Brad Buckley and Charles Perry in the Texas Senate and what they're trying to do is find a clean way to label these foods Uh, representative Buckley notes that quote it is a bill of definitions it's a bill that makes clear that in Texas as technology advances and innovation drives the market consumers will be able to tell very easily by reading the label exactly what they're purchasing. So this bill requires basically two different buckets of alternative meat products to have different labels. Plant-based alt meat products need to be labeled with one of the following, an analog to meat, meatless, plant-based, made from plants or a, quote, similar qualifying term. No doubt lawyers will get in there and and find loopholes to make things fit. But the bill also took a look at cultivated meat. And this is the next major discussion in the realm of of animal agriculture and consumer choices, meat that has been grown from cells of an animal in a Petri dish. Is it still meat? Well, it's the meat tissue of an animal, but it wasn't raised on a pasture. How do we label that? Well, this bill went out and said that products grown using that type of technology need to be labeled as either cell cultured, lab grown, or again, a quote, similar qualifying term that uh, manufacturers can apply for. This is uh, this is one of the first major bills on this kind of legislation here in the country. It was celebrated by the Texas and Southwestern Cattle Raisers Association. The president of that group said, quote, the passage of SB 664 represents the outstanding work of elected officials who not only care about Texas consumer rights, but also protecting the of cattle raisers. It'll be interesting to see which states step up next and craft a piece of legislation definitionally like that one down in Texas. We've got other news coming from Europe. We've talked over the past year about the challenges Dutch farmers have been facing as the Netherlands looks to crack down on nitrogen emissions. This is something their government has taken a very big focus on. It's being driven from the EU, the collection of European countries that as a whole are looking to find ways to promote greener agriculture. Well, the Dutch said the way we're going to cut our nitrous emissions is by eliminating some farming, particularly animal agriculture. The Dutch proposed a plan three months ago to buy out around 3000 different farmers. And it's worth noting this is at this point a voluntary buyout. And in order for the Dutch government to do it, they had to get permission from the European Union earlier this week. The EU did grant that permission. As of now, the Dutch government has $1.65 billion to spend purchasing up these livestock farms and retiring the animals. This is what they want to do. Their goal in the Netherlands is to cut nitrogen oxide and ammonia emissions by 50% nationwide by 2030, seven years from now. It's not sure how much of that target is going to be met. The EU voted on that with these funds. And again, it's that 3,000 farm group that the dutch government is looking to take on first so that has been percolating and in the meantime we have seen dutch farmers have uh, have uh, protests we have seen french farmers protest some of the expansion of these widening environmental concerns and On Friday, we saw one of the largest political parties in the European Union, the European People's Party, put forward a resolution opposing two of the EU's main policies on the environment. This group has come out and they have said they are going to block these laws, which they argue hurt European farmers. So the European people right broadly is considered a central center right party, according to Reuters in Europe. They rejected a proposed EU law that would have required countries to restore damage quote, natural ecosystems and another that was designed to have chemical pesticide use by 2030. This group came out and they said, quote, in too many regions or member states, the implementation of existing nature legislation has, yet, has led to a bureaucratic nightmare and planning deadlock, endangering food security, renewable energy production, critical infrastructure and et cetera. That is the resolution, according to the European People's Party. This has been one of the largest pushbacks against the EU push for clean agriculture. Now this resolution Resolution was adopted or excuse me, was proposed on Friday in the European Parliament. It will be voted on later in the day on Friday. We don't yet know how that is going to be uh, voted upon, but it will be interesting to watch this development. Perhaps this could be the first wave in the slowdown of European efforts on green economy issues. So we'll continue to watch that much to be decided there in Europe. We've got another piece of global news hitting the news wires here on Friday. For those of you who are still paying attention to what the World Health Organization says about the coronavirus pandemic, the World Health Organization, as of this morning, Friday, May 5th, has ended the covid pandemic the world health organization lifted their public health emergency of international concern for covid19 early on friday morning director general uh, of the un world health organization came out and said quote covid19 has been so much more than a health crisis disrupting economies travel shattering business and plunging millions into poverty but he said for more than a year the pandemic has been on a downward trend and life has been allowed to return to normal therefore with great hope I declare COVID-19 over as a global health emergency. Good news there for those of you tracking coronavirus, but bad news if perhaps you are a Tyson Meats investor, Tyson Foods investor. We are expected to see their quarterly earnings coming out later this week, and net income is expected to decline by 65% for Tyson as some higher operating costs have hit that expected earnings. We'll be watching as earnings season moves in. Many ag companies are expected to report their earnings here in the next several weeks. No doubt we'll be plugged into them right here on AOA. Folks, thanks for tuning in. Next week, we'll talk weather with John Baranek. We'll take a look at what's moving in the markets. And of course, at the end of next week, we'll have USDA's supply and demand report for the month of May. We'll have those highlights right here on AOA. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great day. agriculture of america is brought to you by Senex maxtron synthetic diesel engine oil oil that runs smart i think farming picked me i didn't pick farming i'm not afraid to try something new it's my farm
4: my family and our future my channel seedsman gets that i get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential
2: with channel i know i'll prosper for years to come
6: Define your future at channel.com future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved.